Hi, my name is Jameson. Welcome to the Unexpected Experts Podcast, a show where we dive into the vast spectrum of human knowledge and the ways that our experiences make us experts in unexpected ways. Thanks so much for listening. Check, 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 check. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This week is a really great interview with Brandon Wardenberg. So Brandon is one of the co-owners of Good Trade Coffee here in Calgary. They are a small, um, just a two-location coffee shop. Um, Him and his business partner, Guillermo, were the ones that started it up a few years ago. And I am so thrilled to be able to, to have this conversation with him. We talk about how they started the business, the vision behind it, everything, and and even what they're doing internationally. Uh, It's a really good conversation. I'm really, really, really happy about this one and uh, just thrilled that I could could get Brandon on to chat about this coffee shop and this business and this dream. So very excited for you guys to hear it. Also, go and check out Good Trade. They're a really great coffee shop. I love going in there all the time. They've got great coffee. They've got a great little atmosphere. So definitely if you're in the calgary area go check out good trade Uh, they're one of my favorite places to go and speaking of supporting local if you like this podcast uh, head over to patreon.com slash unexpected experts and support this local little podcast and this little show and this and this project that i've uh, really grown to love this project was born out of covid and we're still in the middle of covid and uh, whatever support during this whole thing that any of us can do to support anyone else is always appreciated so head over to patreon um, check out all the perks that i've got going on there and consider supporting this show uh, for for as little as three bucks a month and maybe it's a bit cliche but three bucks a month is even less than a cup of coffee at good trade so uh, if you're already getting your cup of coffee then you know consider uh, supporting this show as well Um, I'm also working on a little something-something for Christmas, so uh, stay tuned for that. Keep your eyes peeled on Instagram and all of that as well for for some extra fun stuff coming down the pipe here in a bit. So uh, watch for that for sure. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks so much, everybody. Enjoy this week's episode with Brandon. Um, This was such a great conversation, and I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. So thanks, everyone. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unexpected Experts. This week, I've got on Brandon Wardenberg. Uh, Brandon is a BC, a beautiful BC native from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Uh, He's been in Calgary for about 15 years now. Him and his family moved here in about 2006. Uh, He and I actually both attended the same college, Rocky Mountain College, at different times, but I think we overlapped by one year. Is that right, Brandon? Something like that. I think, I think so. I think your last year was my first year or something. Yeah, that sounds right. Like super funny. Um, and Brandon graduated there with a Bachelor of Arts in music. What what specifically was it like guitar or vocals or piano or, or what kind of music did you specialize in? It was guitar. Okay, sweet. Little little shreddy vetter over here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, maybe Brand- back then. Yeah. <laughs> A little out of practice. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, Brandon yes, is also right. the Brandon's also the co-owner of Good Trade Coffee here in Calgary, uh, which currently has two locations, 
And I think we were talking about this a little while ago. You've got plans for a third location at some point in the near future too, which is very exciting. Um, he and his wife, Tiffany, are parents to their two boys, Jacob and Isaiah. And it's my very happy pleasure to welcome him to the show this week. Brandon, welcome to Unexpected Experts. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, man. I'm glad we could finally uh, sit down and, and have, a good, have a good little chat. Absolutely. Fun. Yeah. Um, so one, one question that I've been asking all my guests right off the top is uh, kind of as an intro um, into who who you are as a person and all of that is what would you say is your superhero or supervillain origin story? Give us the whole the whole background. Oh man, that's cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, I think for me, the kind of the changing or the turning point was our move out to Calgary. We were young family, um, had my oldest son. Uh, before I was 19 and we just needed to get away, start a new life for ourselves. And uh, moving to Calgary was the hardest thing I think we've ever done. It's, you know, 12 hour drive from where we used to live. Um, young, young family too, but we, we made that move and that kind of catapulted us into this whole new life, you know, started to do music, started to think outside, you know, the small bubble that I was raised in and uh Yeah. I don't know. I guess all things, you know, lead to, to where we are right now. Yeah. What, did, what did that move from Abbotsford to Calgary look like? Like I know Abbotsford is a pretty, pretty small town compared to Calgary. So how did that transition work out for you guys? I mean, I, I think it was really, uh, we, we were so ignorant. We had so naive. We had no idea what we were getting into. You know, Calgary maybe is a hundred or sorry, Abbotsford's maybe 150,000 people at the time. Calgary's about a million or so back then and uh, we had no idea but just knew we needed to do something else Um, and so we I made a plan you know set myself up to go to Rocky where we went to school and then um, just packed the U-Haul and headed out had I've been to Calgary once I think we came for a weekend to scope out some houses It, it wasn't even a long weekend pretty sure it was just two nights uh, scoped out a few houses, picked the best one out of the, the you know the four options that were all pretty terrible, but in my price range. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and <laughs> and then uh, yeah, made this made the move, packed the van and and drove out. You know, my parents drove us out, kind of helped us get set up, and and then it was just up to us. We were on our own. Man, so you'd only been to Calgary one time before that. Yeah. Yep. That's crazy. What what was the what was the reason you came out here for the first time? Um, it was it was just for school. Like I, we came out after we had a few. Okay. F- I guess starting maybe going back a little bit, we had some friends that we went to church with back in the day, um, who ended up coming out to go to school, and uh, I heard a few things, uh, kind of through the grapevine about it, and we needed an escape, and I figured this would be the best best way to do it, so we. Uh, just kind of scoped it out. I sent in my application, got approved, and then we flipped out. And then after that, that was the first time we went to Calgary. So wow, it was it wasn't uh, it wasn't really that premeditated, so to speak. It was it all kind of happened pretty fast. That's crazy. What what did that whole like? What were the events kind of leading up to that move initially? I'd love to hear more about that. 
Yeah, I was I was working at uh, Electronic Arts, you know, the video game company there in oh, yeah. uh, Burnaby, and and it was like about an hour and fifteen drive either way. Had lots of time to think about life, and uh, and I was I'd worked there for about four or five years, and then uh, it just came to a point where I just didn't see myself going any further doing that. Um, but at the same time, I got exposed to music there. There's a lot of music involved in you know building games and whether it's, you know, original songs or atmospheric stuff. Oh, and so I totally. actually thought, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought that I would come learn some stuff about music and then take it back and maybe go back into the industry. Uh, sure. It, but uh, we came out, went to school, and then I, I thought we would head back after my you know four-year degree. But uh, five and a half years later, when I graduated, we still were here. We just planted roots and, and stayed. So it, it was you know, working at Electronic Arts was great and it gave me a lot of great experience and, um, and things, but it was, it was really long hours. Um, it was kind of a tough schedule to build a life around with two kids. So it was good yeah, to, I, I believe that to man. have a change. Yeah. Yeah. I had actually, I think on episode seven of this podcast, I had a friend of mine who's also a video game developer and we cool. chatted about that stuff, but he's working for like a small independent company here in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really interesting. I didn't know that you worked for EA at that point. That's wild. So like, yeah, I'm my first... hearing it from, from the other side, like from one of the biggest video game developers in the industry, like up there with, <laughs> you know, Blizzard or Bungie or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, interesting sort of story leading to it. Like I, I was just kind of floundering out of high school, uh, worked at a, a few places that were dead end jobs. And then I, I started working for a friend of mine repairing, you know, glass for the greenhouses and, in and around, you know, Delta, BC, and Langley, Surrey. Well, there's no shortage of greenhouses out there, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Tons of them. So yeah. I started doing that, and I had done that for a bit. I would say six or seven months, and I had an accident and and sliced my neck pretty good. Um, and it was kind of a, a bit of a wake-up moment for me. Uh, I, I wasn't feeling super motivated before then. I wasn't enjoying life and my my job and um kind of ha- you know I was repairing this ceiling and the glass fell and it kind of sliced my my neck kind of right along the left side of my neck um that's crazy and, and thankfully it didn't go through you know all the layers of skin just kind of two maybe two of the three and and, and I didn't have to get, even get stitches but it was close enough that the doctor in the, at the ER was kind of flabbergasted at, at how how it all went down. Yeah. No but, kidding. Wow. You know, it's hard to get back up on a roof after that, after you have a kind of a close call and there are guys that do it every day and like hats off to them. Cause they, I've heard stories of guys and the guys I used to work with have had stuff happen to them and they just kept trucking and back at it, you know, no fear up on the roof. But for me, it, it just wasn't meant to be. I, I was, you know, cleaning gutters and doing stuff on top. And all I could think about was falling or, or having some, other catastrophe happen. And, and then I just happened to turn to one of the job boards, you know, stuff that no one ever really looks at, I think, and saw that they were hiring at EA. And I was like, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll take any sort of job. Uh, at this point, I just need money, you know, to put on, to put food on the table. Yeah. Any and job that's not cutting your neck open. <laughs> exactly. It's a pretty good alternative. <laughs> yeah. And so it sounded good. You know, sitting on a, on your butt for, you know, six months at a time playing video games. Like that sounds yeah. pretty great. So I applied for that, 
kind of went in for an interview. And by the time I got home, they offered me the job. Of course, I took it. It sounded awesome. It's a, sure. From a s- small town guy, you know, going into the big city, it felt pretty special. So, yeah, it was it was great. Yeah. I loved it. There was you know four or five years of uh, just awesome job, awesome uh, environment, really creative, but long hours. Sure. And yeah. uh, it was just really hard to build my family around that. And that's that's something I've heard a lot too. Is like the burnout. The burnout in that industry is just brutal. Like, like if if you're getting close to a to a launch yeah. date, like you got to have you got to have all hands on deck, and like the burnout can be can be pretty brutal. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah, of course. Like if you got two kids yeah, at yeah. home too, like man, yeah, yeah, they were young, and it was they just needed needed me, and yeah, I wish I could have you know stuck around. It had it been more reasonable hours and stuff, but in in the end, it was it was good because it, it was those hours that made us think about leaving, um, made us think about kind of starting our life in a new place. Sure. Almost pushed you out the door in a way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, the, okay. So you're leaving EA, packing up in Abbotsford, getting all the stuff on the highway, on the way to Calgary. Um, was it for the express purpose of you going to school or was, was there some other plans that you had set up on the other end? Like, what did that all look like? It, it was primarily to go to school, but as a side benefit, um, my biological dad lives in Calgary. And so it was an opportunity also to kind of get to know him and his family. I, oh, cool. I, I did not know uh, him at all until I was about 19. And uh, we moved out from Abbotsford when I was about 23, I think. So I knew, I knew him for a few years just over you know, phone calls and emails things like that. But, uh, it was, it, it was kind of a nice bonus. Get to know them. I have two brothers that live out here, half brothers. And, uh, it was just the chance to get to know them too. Oh, that's cool. I love that. What was it about like music as, as a trade or as a realm of study that really attracted you to coming to, like, I guess, coming to study music? Like what was that? What about music was so attractive for you? Hmm. You know, if I'm honest with myself, I think the most exciting thing about it was, you know, the potential to, to make something of myself to, to, to be known by something or as someone who does something cool. I thought that here's a funny story. I kind of shows how kind of self-centered I think we are. I, <laughs> I, I left, <laughs> I left Abbotsford, um, came to school, you know, thinking I'm, pretty important of course right going to going away to school going to get a music degree that's pretty awesome and i'm you know slugging away having a having a tough go you know it's not easy it's a lot of practice a lot of plus you got school on top of it feeling pretty weighed down and then we went back home for christmas this must have been my second or third year uh in college and i was talking to my cousin and you know again i'm thinking hey i'm awesome you know moving away from a smaller town going to the big city and sure, you know yeah. being real cool and my cousin's like well what are you doing in calgary again and i was like oh man you know you here i am thinking everyone's watching right you know going to school doing awesome stuff going to make something of myself but we're all just we care about ourselves you know at the end of the day i'm sure we totally. try you know we definitely try yeah. to to, to be good people and, and stuff. But ultimately we got a lot going on in our own lives and 
And I think that was kind of a bit of an awakening for me that, you know, I went to school not only to kind of make something of myself, but to show other people that I was making something of myself. Right. Yeah. Like almost like you have something to prove in a way. Absolutely. I definitely had something to prove. Uh, And I think that's kind of, you know, that, that, that motivated me to come here and I'm, I'm I'm happy that I did, but I, I think I went into it with the wrong motives. I, I wanted to, you know, be a rock star. I wanted to be, um, important in that way. And it, uh, you know, I, I finished my degree and it was a really tough five and a half years. It should have been four years, but you know, it took me five and a half to do it, um, with kids and, and whatnot. But sure. You know, it was, it was just tough. There was a lot of, um, a lot of challenges cause I, I don't think I was in it for the right reasons. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, um, like you were, you were the main character in your own story. Right. And I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the journey that we're all on is trying to figure out like what our role is in this world and how, how we are the ones trapped in our own bodies. Right. And everything that we do revolves around our own survival. So why doesn't everyone else around us also feel that way? Right. It's that's right. It's that constant battle of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, but other people are also doing what they're doing. And yeah, I don't, that's yeah. Yeah. That's, I think you're right. That idea, you know, like I I think John Mayer has this line that he talks about, you know, posing for pictures that aren't being taken and this kind of concept uh, of, sure. you know, you feeling like you're in the spotlight when really you're just in your own spotlight. You're not, you know, no one else is spotlighting you the way you think you're being spotlit. And, and um, you know, this grandiose sort of self-importance, I think, you know, look at me, look what I'm doing. It's awesome. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, I think that's something that we all struggle with and deal with, but also it's i think it's a universal thing like we're all actually going through that at the same time right and we are all our own um main character right we're all the main Mm -hmm. character in our own story and but i think the more that we can realize that by listening to other people's stories that they're the main character in their story and by virtue of that as well we can all you know be united in this thing that we call human existence i think that's (laughs) that's pretty cool I like that. Posing for pictures that aren't being taken. That's good. (laughs) So maybe I'd love to just get into a little bit of um, where we met initially was at a church together that we were Mm -hmm we were serving out together and i remember when we were going to this church um you were already like talking about coffee and i um, wanting to roast coffee and start a business and all of that and I, I remember that already a few years ago and so now to see you know you have two locations like you've got your small one in the in the market and then your your full shop there in kensington it's it's really cool to see like the journey that you've already come on in the few years that I've known you and, uh, and the way that you're just kind of living out all of that. So maybe what were some of the, actually, let, let's start with the question, why coffee? What was it about coffee that initially um, maybe sparked your interest or, um, or 
drew you to it as a potential business opportunity? Yeah, man, I, you know, it's not, I, coffee wasn't a thing for me, to be honest. Um, you know, if I can kind of rewind a little bit, kind of go back a little earlier, we, uh, I, I was running uh, the Mustard Seeds Homeless Shelter at the time. So when I left Rocky there in you know, 2011, uh, finished going to school there, I, in order to put myself through school, I did some kind of random jobs, of course, you know, did some roofing, did some framing, some remediation work, all those sorts of stuff just to okay. make a buck th- through summer. Sure. And then, you know, the mustard seed had an opportunity to run, um, they called it Seedworks, which is our social enterprise. Okay. And, and sorry, for, were, for anyone that doesn't know what the mustard seed is, they are oh, yeah. a, they're a homeless shelter here in Calgary, or um, maybe just explain a little bit about what the mustard seed is and what they do. Yeah, you know, it's a homeless serving agency that you know, provides housing, uh, you know, emergency shelter, employment opportunities, um, kind of a full suite of services for those, you know, experiencing homelessness. Right. Yeah. And and so I, back in the day, you know, I had uh, applied for an opportunity there where we they were renovating a building and they needed a foreman. And so I had some experience and uh, in the industry. And so I applied and it was me and about 10 to 14 guys who are living on the street, you know, varying levels of addiction or mental health challenges, varying skill levels and the goal was to give them some work opportunities so they could build out their resume you know earn some money and hopefully find a job themselves or find housing for themselves and so that's how i kind of got into my first social enterprise uh it was good to you know see how you can work to solve you know a social problem and have a, a business problem that you can work on too, you know, a business opportunity at the same time that they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You don't have right. to have a, yeah. a nonprofit model that helps people. And then a for-profit model that just makes a bunch of money. You can have this hybrid model we call social enterprise where it's, it's a for-profit business that supports in some way um, change in the world. And, so I spent about seven years or so at the mustard seed. And at the end of that, I was running the home, the, the shelter and had about 400 beds, you know, about hundred staff or so. And one of those staff was my uh, current business partner, uh, Guillermo. So Guillermo is from Colombia. Um, I hired him uh, to work with me at, at the seed and uh, we just became fast friends. Um, and, and together we knew that there had to be, kind of a different way that's when I got introduced or or kind of dove more into what social enterprise really is because you know the mustard seed does great work absolutely no ill will there whatsoever Uh, but it's an expensive model it costs a lot of money to raise the money you need Um, it's not as efficient as I think it could be Um, and the metrics and the numbers that you record don't necessarily show the right uh, change that's that that you want to see. So I sure. thought there would be an okay. oppor- opportunity to do something in business that would allow us to, uh, you know, generate our own sustainable revenue to solve the problem you know, using evidence-based approaches and, and a way that you can kind of make pivots and changes quickly without having to, you know, inform your entire donor base that you were changing. But you know, through the sustainable business revenue, you can. Um, you know, pivot, kind of iterate, make changes uh, to find where you can be successful and, and, and do the best work. 
So yeah, okay. that's kind of how I got okay. into into coffee. We at that point we like Guillermo and I basically said we know we want to do something. We know we want it to be a business model that is for profit, but but solves this world problem. What, what problem could we solve? And so he's from Colombia, and I didn't know much about Colombia. I've always loved you know South American culture. I love you know the people, the language, etc. And so I. I knew that I was kind of excited about working in Colombia, but I didn't know, don't know anything about it. So he went down for about a month and we did some reconnaissance. You know, what could we do? The first idea we had was to work in potatoes. We, we thought it's, it's a, if they produce a mass load of potatoes uh, and there's a lot of um, opportunity, we thought, to kind of buy these potatoes, clean them up, maybe chop them up, make them ready to serve. Uh, maybe we'd rent a warehouse, something, and we would employ people. And the social enterprise piece could be maybe we employ people with disabilities or people who, uh, like single moms who are struggling to, uh, you know, afford to put food on their table, etc. cetera. Sure. Yeah. That we work with some vulnerable or marginalized group. And uh, we're pretty excited about that idea. Uh, Guillermo has got some experience in potatoes growing up. His his well, father and was a potato farmer. You've got a Dutch last name, you know. You've, you've got some experience <laughs> in potato. <laughs> Being yeah, from Abbotsford. there's I'm a lot sure of Dutch there's, folks out there. There's some uh, you know potato learning via osmosis from as I yeah. grew up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but the the challenge, I guess, is that we learned is that the potato market is so volatile. There's not as much regulation, so prices go up and down and up and down and it's really hard to build a business around it unless you really have a lot of money or you know what you're doing. And we had okay. neither. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So potatoes were out and we wanted to do something else. We, we knew coffee was big in Colombia, but I didn't know how big uh, we learned that there's 600,000 farming families in Colombia that are involved in coffee in some way, shape or wow. form. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And about 62% of the time lived below, you know, what you consider the world's poverty line. So there's a lot of, you know, vulnerable people making wow. these fantastic products. Um, so we did a bit more research. We we have a few, we had a few connections. Uh, yeah, just kind of dove in and, and tried to figure out where the need was, where we could help. And uh, we figured coffee was... The way to go. Uh, I think apart from a handful of Starbucks coffees and you know some Tim Hortons coffees, that that's that was my extent of my knowledge in sure. coffee at the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I knew knew very little. Not until about the the week before we opened our first location. That's when I pulled my first espresso shot and I uh, steamed wow. my first pitcher of milk before a week before we had you know already spent $30,000 on coffee equipment and I still hadn't pulled a shot by then. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're an old pro just just pulling shots and and slinging milk. Yeah, I've, for your I've pulled job. a few shots since then. Yeah. Yeah, one one or two. Yeah. One yeah, just a couple. <laughs> yeah. Man, that is super interesting. I love that connection, like just such a random serendipitous connection between you and this guy that you hired at the mustard seed. And yeah. then he's from like Colombia, which is such a coffee capital of the world. And wow, that's a really interesting story. So what were what were some of the biggest challenges initially that you guys faced with like starting the business? And like how did how did that all look? You know, I think at the beginning a lot of it is 
it's similar to any business. Um, I didn't, I've never, I'd never started a business before. This is my first venture. Um, so I didn't know how to, um, you know, incorporate ourselves. We started out as a nonprofit because we, we saw some benefits there that we could perhaps receive some grant money or okay. some donations, something like that to help us get right. going. I guess initially like money and capital off the top is, is a big portion. Like you would need investors or something to, or have that capital already yourselves yeah. to start something. So ideally, yeah, sense. you know, yeah. ideally you'd have some money, but we had nothing. We, we were doing this off the side of our desks, you know, at the seed. So I was doing this in the evenings and weekends and we had, we had no money. Um, but we just knew we had time and energy to figure it out. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, we, we did our own incorporations. Uh, we started as a nonprofit. We operated as a nonprofit for about a year, but then we needed some capital. We needed some money and we, we needed that, uh, like a line of credit, credit cards, just the basic sure. stuff that businesses sure. need to operate. And as a nonprofit, it was really hard to do that. You, in order to get like a $10,000 line of credit, you have to have $10,000 sitting in the bank. It's like a, you know, a cash secured line of credit. So, well, what's the point? If I have $10,000 in my bank account, why do I need this $10,000 line of credit at the time? Yeah. Um, so we we incorporated as a for-profit um, instead, and it took us about a week, and we had all of this, you know, we had financing. We had, you know, our line of credit. We had our credit cards. Um, we were able to you know, figure out our loans for our equipment for our first location. And so they took us a lot more seriously when we went the for-profit route. Um, and we were just, you know, dedicated to making sure that we were supporting the work that we wanted to do in Colombia, um, and by by keeping our nonprofit open. So we technically have two companies. We have a for-profit company and a nonprofit that work in tandem to deliver okay. the work in Colombia. So the second hardest part was making sure that we were able to legally work in Colombia. Um, I know I don't speak Spanish very well. And uh, my business partner uh, lives here with me, you know, in Calgary. So we're trying to do all this work remotely to have a, you know, a foreign entity set up in Colombia. So that was fun learning all about the legalities and what you need to have for an accountant, bookkeeping, all of those are different. What you would expect here or what you expect here um, is not what happens down there. Totally. Totally. Like it's, it's one thing to have a company and then you maybe franchise like, you know, Peter's driving, like they got their original location here in Calgary and they got a second one up in Red Deer, which apparently yeah. isn't as good, but here we are. But <laughs> at least it's all like within the same country and within the same province, but you're dealing with like stuff that, and there's a lot of businesses that will have other locations, maybe in the States or yep. something like that, but you're in a totally different continent. Like that's, that's wild. What a journey. Yeah, I think usually when you think about expansion into another country, it's when you've dominated your you know, current market. So you've probably got money in sure, the bank yeah. and lots of plans. Like you're, you're a little or, more, you're a little more established and you're like, you've yeah, got absolutely. some stuff figured out, but we just knew but nothing. like starting, we, starting two things off the hop in two separate countries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man. Yeah. But in order to make, you know, the mission and vision happen, we, we had to figure that out. Um, and, and then from there it was just finding, um, the coffee. So we started by importing our own coffee and realized that that was just a whole other business. You can spend an entire lifetime just building a business of importing coffee. And that's sure. something that we'd, we'd like to do 
down the road, but we found a great partner um, who does all the logistics for us. So it allowed us to to focus in on the social impact that we want to create as well as grow you know, the, the revenue side of our business too. Um, it just gave us, uh, we had enough stuff to focus on. We didn't need to worry about you know, shipping tons and tons of coffee around the world. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we, we worked on some connections uh, there and kind of legit, the logistics. We also have another business partner named, named Erman who lives in Bogota and he's our, uh, director of education. So he's the one that works with the schools, does the uh, education programming with kids, with teachers and with parents. Um, and he's got about 20 years of experience working in the conflict zones of Colombia. Wow. Uh, at, yeah. At risk youth or uh, different marginalized groups, um, some pretty crazy stuff. So, he, and so we've got a crack team down there for sure. Yeah, seriously. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what a level of experience to have in such a in such a crazy field. But of course, a field that Guillermo and yourself are both passionate about. So what what does that whole like education side in Colombia look like as far as good trade is concerned? Yeah. Like what what does that all look like? You know, everybody you know I talk to about it wants it to be real sexy, but it's not. It's it's real, <laughs> you know, grassroots <laughs> work. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's nothing crazy. It's just a lot of hard work. You know, that's what, uh, you know, businesses are, um, and especially like social enterprise, it's a lot of extra hard work. And so we, we essentially deliver programs around socio emotional skills, things like empathy, things like conflict resolution, interpersonal skills, uh, different types of communication. And in, in order to help those communities that have been affected by a lot of the conflict, I don't know um, how much people know, but, you know, about, I'd say about 60 years or so now, Colombia has been in turmoil with, you know, the, the guerrilla groups, uh, paramilitarism, the Colombian government, narcos, right? You've right, got yeah. this um, kind of really unstable uh environments that are all in these agricultural areas you know the cities for the most part didn't see a whole lot of this but um the agricultural areas have been the ones that are mostly affected um so these the clashing of these groups and because of that i think you've created or yeah because of that these um the the locals you know who live in these remote areas rightfully so feel like they don't have a lot of great connection with their neighbors. Uh, they don't have a lot of amazing social skills you know, around conflict resolution because, you know, conflicts have, have been settled by guns and, you know, uh, knives, right. yeah. uh, not uh, words. And so you've got this, the, these people that are, you know, fantastic people and are so loving and caring, but they don't have the experience uh, to, to know how to kind of, I guess, collaborate and cooperate in healthy ways. And so you kind of through that knowledge, we wanted to start helping. Um, and we thought that the best way to go would be to start working with the young moldable minds and, mm, and sure. start teaching yeah. them those skills. There's, there's a lot of uh, like domestic violence that happens in these regions too, because, you know, the lack of the, of the skills. So, we knew that if we could support these children, that we could kind of change, help them 
develop the skills they need to change the future of their little community, their little village. You know, it might only be a couple hundred people, but um, but the, they could kind of empower themselves and and kind of change the trajectory of where their community's headed. Well, and education is always the first step for sure. Like educating yeah. the young minds, right? That are, like you said, impressionable, but not in like an exploiting way, right? Obviously, like you're wanting to help and impact and bring about lasting change from yep. a root position, like from from the people that are going to be growing up and taking over that country eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Play the long game. You know, it, totally. And when, yeah. when you really think about it, education is 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 kind of the obvious choice when you think about it from a North American perspective. You know, sure. you think of like, oh, well, yeah, just walk down the street, go to your school. Well, these kids will often travel, you know, 45, 50 minutes by um, like their little bikes or a moped down from the mountain for the coffee growing areas down to a small community where they can go to school and it's, it's treacherous. It's hard. There's a lot of incentives for them to not go to school such right. as like, you know, the family might um, be struggling, uh, maybe making not enough money. And so they need to work with the farm to help put food on the table and a roof over their head, or they get caught up in gangs or drug groups. And there's a lot of incentives to not go to school where in some of these areas, the average child does about six years of education. Wow. Six years. That's it. Yeah. And so if you, you know, you look at the numbers and you see, you know, in the next three years, over 600,000 kids across Colombia and the rural parts will leave school. They will just not come back to school. Right. About 10, 10% of students is the numbers that we've heard. And, so every year that they you know, don't spend in school, they don't, you know, develop um, holistically, you know, and, and, and um, you know, they, they miss out on a lot. So we want to encourage them to stay in school. So we want to work with schools to be engaging. Um, it's not only just about arithmetic and you know, algebra and, and grammar, but it's about keeping kids engaged because there are other alternatives. There are, there are other things that are, taking them away from school that maybe are a little more intriguing, a little more enticing. So we sure, want to create sure. school, help, help these schools, um, keep kids engaged. Yeah. So, okay. What, what part has, um, has good trade, I guess, had in, in the development of maybe these kind of programs or like what, what would be the more like practical ways that um, Good Trade has been able to invest in these kind of communities and in these kids and in these educational systems? We we do uh, workshops mainly right now. Um, okay. We we work with these schools. Uh, sometimes it's you know we'll go to, from classroom to classroom. Other times we work with the teachers who then you know spread that information to the students. Um, and uh, we have uh, facilitators on the ground that do the work. Uh, last year, we worked with 1,300 kids, and it, you know, from ages, uh, I guess about six to 16, almost 17, somewhere, somewhere in there. And wow, we so almost almost the full gamut on... from like grade one to grade 12, almost. Yeah. Hey? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's they're smaller schools, and so they're often mixed together. Sure, um, sure. 
and it's a it's fairly easy to kind of tackle these large groups and we just try to try to be engaging try to be encouraging um, and, and give them some of these skills and and try to help teachers be able to incorporate them into their daily you know curriculum as well so it's real just hands hands on you know boots on the ground uh, one one to one or one to a few type workshops right Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. I love like just the practical way that, you know, a, a small business here in Canada is able to impact like how many kids, like 1300, something yeah. like that. You've, that's crazy. It's, uh, we had 1300 and uh, another school that we were, su- that we were supporting as well prior to COVID. But, you know, as, with COVID, uh, a lot of things shut down, schools shut down and sure. we haven't been able to, to continue our relationship with that school um, because they're still figuring things out with COVID, but yeah, 1300. Um, right. Yeah. It's been, it's been really good. And I think that for us, it's been a, a year of testing and learning. So we're hoping to, to kind of double that over the next year or so. Um, we've all already had interest from the local authorities there to, to expand our reach into some different schools, other oh, schools wow. in the region. Yeah. I, I think we, we've talked about this, uh, my business partner and I, it's the challenge is not necessarily finding people to support and help that that's kind of the easy part. It's trying to do it strategically well, um, where, you know, we got to focus on having that sustainable revenue. We have to make sure that we have good long-term relationships. Sure. Uh, and like establishing and, and that, it well, that, that trust, right? Yeah. Yeah, but there is, you know, with 600,000 farming families, there's not a, a shortage of people to support. It's just how totally. do you do it well, meaningfully, with the resources you can have? Um, yeah. yeah. it's uh, And so sometimes are, you have to say no. Sure, yeah. So then how does, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how does all of this education stuff kind of trickle back to, like, the coffee farmers? Are the kids from these farms the ones primarily that are in the schools that you're reaching? Yeah, it's a mix, but yes. So we focus in okay. on the coffee-growing regions. So there's a, a lot of coffee, um, you know, f- the kids from the, the coffee farms come down from the okay. hills, go to the school. But there's naturally a good mix of, you know, some town folk, also people who you know involved in other industries farming but um you know our sure. yeah we we focus in on the mainly coffee growing regions as a, you know that's the connection to our coffee company here in Canada right i think it's yeah. it's that that um that obvious connection that consumers can see here's some coffee you buy this coffee and it directly supports kids in coffee growing regions it's a it's a simple message yeah. Uh, to, yeah. Very, very tangible for them too. Like this coffee yeah. was grown in this region by these families of which yep. we support their education. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. I love that. So then how does, how does all of that work on a business standpoint up here in Canada, as far as the shops go and the locations and currently you're I know we were chatting last week about you wanting to open up a third location. Like how does that all work in as well? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it all works together. There are some businesses that like to say things like, um, you know, we take 10% of our net profits and put it towards this cause or for every, sure. you know, 
thing you purchase, we do something, you know, plant a tree or take right. you know, yeah. garbage out of the ocean, something like that. Uh, and those are, those are great. Those are ways for people to really draw an easy connection for everything that I purchase or everything that I do has a direct effect. The business kind of does something good for everything that I buy. And, and I, I, I like that. I think the next stage though, is when you commit to change and you commit to a project and you put all your resources to it. Um, it, you're not, it's not as easy to say, it's not as clear cut to say, oh, we take you know, 10% of our revenue or we take, you know, every year we donate this much. But what we do is we set our sights on change and we, we try to resource ourselves the best way we can to help solve that problem, create that change. So for this, uh, this year, you know, we were able to support 1300 kids based on our, you know, success of our two shops. But in order to increase our impact, which really means, you know, we need dollars to spend on great facilitators. We need dollars to spend on our uh, curriculum development, all those pieces. Um, we need another shop to increase our revenue. So our uh, our goal is to create this thriving network of coffee shops and, and wholesale programs uh, and, and you know, e-commerce business that will uh, we can commit to ch- making change in these these coffee growing areas and grow that impact by growing the network of coffee shops and things. So we try we try to make it one in the same. Right. Well, like the more that you invest in those coffee growing areas, the more that that investment will produce a return for the business, which will in turn produce um, a benefit for those farms. So it's it's a perpetually growing cycle in that way, too. Yeah. You know, one way to think of it or one way to picture it or understand it, I guess, is, you know, we were able to work with a farmer last year, uh, purchase some coffee and by purchasing coffee at a, at a better than fair trade price, she was able to turn that around and have a technology improvement in her farming. She was able oh, to, cool. she put in this, these beds. So normally coffee's dried, say about like two feet off the ground in these flat beds under tarps. Um, and that's fairly typical, but she was able to install a retractable roof that allowed her to better control the way that the beans were drying. And oh, interesting. In, in turn, that creates a better product. So she's able to sell it for a little bit more money. The company, other people who buy it, like companies like us, can then also sell it for more money. Um, and it provide it's this great cycle. You know, if we pay what these products are worth, these farmers invest it directly back into their farm or their community, and it's really very tangible the 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 economic effects by purchasing and that's just right. one example of, of like how things get better i think you know for us the other thing too is that we want we're trying to differentiate ourselves in a competitive market there's a lot of other shops a lot of other you know community coffee shops or you know chains or ones that have a couple locations and, and we're trying to differentiate ourselves by being you know a social enterprise first and foremost so we use this kind of uh, messaging in in our advertising, our, you know, marketing, all those pieces, we want people to know first and foremost that when they buy coffee from us, that it has a direct net effect uh, for these communities in Colombia. And so uh, that's a benefit to us too. You know, we can help grow our business by using the stories and the impact that we're creating in Colombia. And I think that's, 
that's not just unique to our business, but other social enterprises. That's the future, I think, of, of business. That's where it's going. That's great. I love that. Okay, so I'm I'm just drawing like a parallel in my mind because I used to work at Starbucks. Yeah. And uh, and they always had on some of the bags it would be like fair trade, whatever, right? And it would have that like fair trade logo on it. And yep. now I'm just thinking about like the name of your company is Good Trade. Was that yeah. decision to to have Good Trade in front of it? Was that decision like very intentional? Maybe in how it, it relates to fair trade. It it was semi intentional. Uh, in in Spanish, uh, there's uh, I, I can't remember. I think I can remember, but I'd butcher it if I tried. But there's a <laughs> saying, and it's and it's good trade. It translates to good trade in English, but it's more than just hey, I made a good trade. It, it's there's a lot to it. There's it, it kind of implies this sense of uh, of good standing between two people, uh, a, okay. an equal transaction you know one that benefits both parties um, but it's full of you know trust and care etc and right, so we really right. liked that because we, lo- we were looking for something that would work in english and spanish uh, as a you know company that we'd have to operate in these two cultures we wanted something that would kind of bridge that gap and work sure and then yeah you've got you know fair trade direct trade uh, all these other types of you know wording and it just happened to play into that and that was pretty cool. One thing that I that I was working on when I was working at Starbucks was going through the Coffee Masters program that they have. Yep. And so in that program, you learn a lot about farming and the fermentation process and all the different steps that a bean takes from the tree what cherries are picked which ones are dried how it's dried what the parts of the bean are where like how it's packaged shipped roasted um shipped again and then finally ground and brewed so what does what does maybe the whole journey of good trade coffee look like like from growing to picking to fermenting to bagging to shipping to <laughs> roasting to the final espresso yeah. pull like what is what does that whole journey look like for your coffee well you you kind of nailed it i mean it all of those steps that you said um just from these more fringe areas we the ones that we work with uh tend not to be like right in the center of where co- all the commercial coffee is grown there's there's so many farming families in, in coffee that there's some that just don't have access to the greater market um, as easily just based on their location. So we've been pretty happy to be buying coffee from farmers that are a little more rural, a little more remote. Um, and and it gives us an opportunity to grab some really great coffees. It just ha- also happens to be more dangerous areas uh, to get into. So, uh, but everything sure. you said, you know, from the, the, all the coffees are... Coffee is such a hand-picked, uh, hand-crafted product. Absolutely. You know, it, yeah. We look at it here in North America, and it's big business, right? It, Canada's $6.2 billion business, um, you know, total market for coffee. It, it's, it's big, and we, we see it moving in semi-trucks and whatever, but coffee is really handled on the backs of donkeys still. In, in Colombia, it's hand-picked, moved by donkeys, um, you know, dried in these manual ways, hand-picked. Like all the, 
like when you do quality control on the coffee as it's you know drying, it's hand selected. You're grabbing little beans and like, yeah, oh, that's like not a good one. One cherry and, at a time. They're individually yeah. picked. Yeah. Exactly. It's still such as manual, you know, loving hands uh, on every little bean kind of a, a process. And then, you know, farmers then work with their local cooperatives, which is, which is great. There are great cooperatives. There are not, there are some not so great cooperatives, but in general, cooperatives tend to work well for farmers and the, they work with the farmer or sorry, they, uh, the farmers work with the cooperatives to then reach buyers uh, across the world. And from there, you know, coffees get tasted, they get tested, they get um, scored on various levels of quality, and then uh, they get bid on and purchased. And uh, yeah, they come by sea container. Uh, ours come into Vancouver, where they're stored at the port. And then we kind of bring them over as necessary. Okay. And uh, roast them, you know, every week. And uh, yeah, try to be as fresh as possible. Man, that's incredible. Okay, so that actually dovetails perfectly into um, – I, I posted something on Instagram this morning asking if people had questions for a local coffee shop owner. And so oh, yeah. um, one, of them, one of the questions was, do you roast your own beans? And uh, if not, would you ever consider? But I'm, I'm guessing from that, from what you just said, that you guys do roast your own beans. Yeah, we – you know, surprisingly, we we work with a, a roaster here in town. Um, we again, knowing nothing about the roasting process, the coffee process when we started, we needed great partners. So we actually roast uh, at the same facility um, as some other fantastic you know local roasters like Monogram. Oh, cool! Um, you know, very talented. Uh, it gives us access to people who have you know fantastic palates who have you know spent probably decades in the coffee industry. And as we figure ourselves out, it gave us a good foundation. So, you know, we give feedback on all of the quality, like quality, the, the taste, the direction of the roast, all those things, but the labor and the equipment are, are from, uh, you know, a local roaster. So, you know, I, I tell people that we roast our own uh, beans because it's simpler. It's easier to understand than having to explain all of that to everybody. (laughs) But totally. when you have, you know, ultimate control over how it gets roasted and what beans are being selected and uh, all the flavor profiles uh, or roasting profiles, pardon me, then you, um, yeah, we roast our own stuff. That's really cool. I love that. So you're, you're almost, it's almost like the opposite of a collective on this side. Like you have a collective of other roasters in the area that yeah. have their experience that are helping you out in a way too. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, there's a lot of business reasons why, you know, you're sharing equipment that is, you know, you can spread the costs out. You know, we don't have to spend totally. $300,000 on this, this equipment that we would use once a week, but yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we can share that cost amongst others. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits to doing it that way. I think as we grow, our hope would be in the next five years is probably to take that over under our own wing and kind of, capture more of that you know the vertical so to speak but uh for now we're really happy and uh focusing on just growing the brand totally well and you can learn from from the experience and the palates of other people that are roasting your coffee right now and see what they're doing and how they're doing it and see what you can replicate in the future too i think that's brilliant Absolutely. I think another thing I, I, I can mention too about it is about consistency. When you're doing really small oh, batches, totally. 
you know, your, your customers don't have, uh, or they might be experiencing a little up and down, you know, a little inconsistency with the flavors, with the, you know, the roast, the final roasts. Um, whereas, you know, when you roast, um, in larger batches, like we do, um, you can, it's a bit more consistent and you can, you know, produce a more consistent result every time. So, you know, having the right equipment, is, it's not just small roasting equipment that we could afford, but it's larger equipment it gives us, uh, so many you know, positives. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I got two more questions here from other people too. Um, and this is maybe more <laughs> as, um, as a coffee shop experience. And I can definitely yeah. relate to some of this having worked at Starbucks for four years. Um, <laughs> Uh, the first question is, do you enjoy having a front row seat for awkward first dates? <laughs> oh, that sounds like someone knows. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, coffee dates are the new, um, you know, t- the Tinder dates, right? Like it's easy. You got a five, six minute coffee and if it doesn't go well, oh, well, you know, totally. you haven't given up yep. too much of your day. I have seen, <laughs> I've seen a, a fair amount, uh, of, and it you can always spot it right away, but uh, yeah, it, it is that's a great awkward uh, front row seat. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. Man, the amount that I saw too at, at the two stores that I worked at, like crazy. And then kind of <laughs> similar to that too, like uh, do you ever eavesdrop on conversations? And then in parentheses <laughs> they put I totally would. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it oftentimes you don't even have to eavesdrop. I we're kind of like you know daytime bartenders. It, they're people just open up. Um, if you're even the least bit friendly, uh, people open up, you know, I think in general people want to be known. And so if you can just open them up a little bit, have some good conversation. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, you, yeah. So yes, there's definitely opportunities to eavesdrop and, and you're, there's <laughs> awkward moments where it's quiet and, and, and people are talking and you're trying to look busy and pretending not to hear, but you definitely, are listening or maybe it's not by choice but you are yeah (laughs) and yeah it's it's kind of a fun environment and our coffee shop if you've been there is i mean i know you have but it's small so it's about 750 square feet it's you know lots of windows and the sound travels we like the small space because it creates these little collisions that people that can bump into each other or people yeah, meet, new, totally. meet, meet new people. Uh, the Kensington's a great community where a lot of people know each other already. So when they walk in, they'll be like, Oh, Hey, whatever, Steve. Um, and they might be neighbors or they might live on, you know, close to each other, whatever. And yeah. so the, the, the small spaces create these cool collisions too. So yeah, there's, lots of opportunity for awkwardness but also (laughs) from that i think there's a lot of the benefit of that intimacy the little connections and you know i've i've had people come in and they think it's too small or they don't love the layout um you know and that's okay um it's not for everybody they might go find a you know a dark corner at a starbucks or, or another place where they can um you know be on their laptop by themselves but i find that our clientele they they love the story you know, the coffee and the people that we serve, um, you know, the social impact we create, and they tend to be really open and social, so sociable, sociable people. Yeah, totally. And yeah, like maybe a tighter space might not be so COVID friendly, but yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I think it definitely just provides such a sense of intimacy. And that's what I love every time that I come in there and I, 
I make it a point to come in at least once a week to get a cup of coffee from you guys because I love what it is that you're doing, not only just locally, but also like like what you've explained here with everything that you're doing in Colombia and the way that you're supporting the farmers. And that's something that I want to support, right? And I've, geez, like I've I've paid my penance. I've done my time at the big coffee company, the big <laughs> siren logo monolith of Starbucks. And yeah, um, you know, I, I think especially in COVID times right now, it's more important than ever to support smaller businesses and to have that level of investment in your community. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank it's awesome to have you and thanks for the support and giving me a, a chance to spread some of the, you know, good trade gospel on your podcast. <laughs> well, and it's good <laughs> coffee, honestly, like it's phenomenal coffee. So if, if anyone in the Calgary area has not had good trade coffee, you have to go there <laughs> in Kensington. They got a great little shop and it's, it's my, it's my favorite coffee place to go and get a cup. So. Oh, thanks, man. I, I, you know, I've got this saying that, you know, the story will sell the first cup, but if the product sucks, you know, people aren't going to come back. So, you know, <laughs> nice. if you want to sell, yeah. if you want to sell a second cup, you have to have a good product. Totally. So, <laughs> so I, I, that kind of works a bit into my next question here too, is like, how has COVID affected the business and um, like boots on the ground type of work that you guys have had to do here in Calgary? Like, how has that affected everything? Well, it was crazy at first. You know, we, we opened Kensington uh so it would have been end of november 2019 so say yeah three three months before covid yeah yeah and and i think while other businesses were shutting down around us we were so new we didn't have a choice we had no cash in the bank really you know it was all invested into the space and we didn't have any capital to sit back on and, and ride out um, you know, the first bit. So we just stayed open. Uh, we, yeah, it was, you know, there's so much up and down. We, you know, restaurants were closing, the streets were empty. Um, and, and we just were like, well, we don't have a choice, so might as well stay open. Um, and in fact, you know, everyone else, you know, all the restaurants were like laying off people and we were like, well, like, shoot, I guess we need to start laying people off too. And we looked at our staff and we laid off, uh, one person and we ended up having to bring them back less than three weeks later. Uh, so staying open, we were kind of forced to, we didn't have a choice, but I think it was one of the best things that happened to us. Um, you know, maybe it, it was a little stressful, you know, as we learned about COVID and what was really going on, you know, sure. lots of uh, misinformation going around at that time, but, but it, it actually kind of kickstarted our little shop there in Kensington. We were the only coffee shop open in Kensington um, at one point. I think maybe Tim's, Tim Hortons was open too. But everyone else wow. had closed. And, you know, in retail, when you're trying to capture customers, let them know you're there, it's really hard because you're, you're trying to change their automatic everyday habits. I bet you, you know, if you watch, you know, any length of time down in Kensington – uh, people generally follow the same path every day. They walk on the same side of the street. They cross at the same corner. And when you sure. have a yep. standalone retail shop, you want them to cross over to your side of the street. So the only way you can break up those habits is to capture their attention. And, and COVID definitely you know, broke some habits. Um, and and it, it gave us a bit of visibility. So uh, 
I don't really like saying it, but like COVID was was kind of a a good thing. That feels weird to say, but sure. you know, it, it helped it helped the yeah. business get started just by being a little bit more visible to people. Yeah, well, um, and you and, guys are on a pretty visible corner too, like down in Kensington. Like you're in a pretty yeah. iconic little spot, like a nice little landmark. And I love what you did with the with the windows there last year and the whole the like rainbow gradient along the windows. I think it was beautiful. Yeah. It was just a good like visual draw to bring the eye to that corner again. Yeah. Just trying to draw attention. Yeah. Yeah. It, and uh, we've been good ever since. Um, we've had some ups and downs every time there's new r- rules to follow, but uh, as people settle into each new set of restrictions, it was uh, we, our clientele kept growing and the customer uh, customers kept coming back. Um, and we're pre- we feel pretty fortunate. I think there's a lot of businesses out there that, you know, aren't in our position. Um, they've really felt, you know, really bad effects from COVID. Uh, and quite honestly, apart from the government subsidies that every business qualified for, we didn't qualify sure. for any, anything. Um, and that really, that's, we were just, we were doing too well. Um, Wow. And I don't say that lightly. I think that's just a reflection of the community around us. You know, Kensington supporting small business, supporting the local shops. Totally, uh, people really took that seriously. I remember with the first few weeks of COVID, I had dozens of people walk in, and they they would just say, "I don't really want anything to drink right now, but I want to support you. What could I do?" Oh, and wow! Like just that type of attitude. Um, yeah, it, it's been it's been unbelievable. That is incredible. Wow. And honestly, the Kensington is such a great neighborhood for that kind of thing. Man, like the the amount of like history there and just the people that are in that area. And I, I haven't spent a ton of time in Kensington, but honestly, like for lack of a better phrase, the vibe that I get from a place like Kensington is just so supportive and everything that the people that live there do is in favor and in support of the people that live next door to them and i think that was that was only exemplified when we had the floods here in 2013 too like the way that all the areas along the river that flooded um, yeah like drew together like bonass or kensington or inglewood like all these areas like really banded together in that way too i think that just developed such a sense of community and then of course a global pandemic comes in yep and uh starts shutting down businesses and yeah, that is that's beautiful. I love that so much. Yeah, absolutely. It's been unbelievable. One thing that we were kind of chatting about a little bit last week was, you know, Good Trade has a relationship with a bunch of churches in the area and including my church at Commons. Mm-hmm. And maybe being a business that sources coffee to several churches around the city, what does that dynamic look like between yourself as a person of faith and business owner and the local churches that you have partnerships with? Yeah, it's it can be tricky, you know, and, and this is a, a touchy subject, I think, for, for some. Um Ultimately, I think our business is about creating, you know, positive change. Uh, it's a, it's about committing ourselves to, you know, our students in Colombia, 
supporting them, helping them live better lives. And I think when you you look at that in you know a, a biblical context, you're really just saying, um, you know, we're taking care of the least of these. We're taking care of people who uh, don't have the resources to take care of themselves, or, or we're trying to support them and help them and give them the resources. And right, you know, yeah. I, I work with churches. I I work with um, you know different groups, different nonprofits, even. And often the questions that I get are around like, well, how are you telling them about Jesus? What's the, yeah, how are you, yeah. what's the gospel message look like? And I'm pretty frank. It, there isn't one. We don't, yeah. we don't lead, we don't, we <laughs> don't lead with that. I think that's <laughs> yeah. totally fine. Yeah. And I think, you know, as my you know level of understanding of, uh, you know, what, how my faith is, is kind of grown and changed and adapted as I get older and have new experiences and things like that. What's more, what's the most important to me is just supporting people and just uh, caring and, and serving people. And so when you work with a church it's an obvious connection, you know, they're looking for also ways to support people. Um, and we can make an easy, quick connection there. Just tell them, Hey, you already drinking coffee you have 300 people walk through your doors on a Sunday that that's, you know, a fair amount of coffee going up uh, or being consumed. How about yep. we also partner and we work with, um, uh, you know, these Colombian students and then you, you can, you get to turn around and say, Hey, we're even like, we're even doing good work with, by just drinking coffee. And totally. for us, that's a great sort of marketing uh, angle. It's a, it's a, you know, we love working with people who build community of all types, right? Uh, and so we're happy to partner with, you know, lots of different groups and um, and kind of be a support that way. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what it looks like from our perspective. I love that. I, I was listening to a podcast again today, and they were talking about um, creativity in the church and what that's looked like for, like, for the guys that were on the podcast and also just as a general idea in in the church of what does creativity look like? And so often it's creativity is okay within these three categories. Maybe it's like worship or maybe it's like graphic design, or maybe it's, you know, there's a special poem read on Easter or something like that, but it's, it's always creativity within the confines of within the context of what that church is trying to do. And within their um, limited scope or within what that church's vision is. And so I think if, you know, if, if I was a plumber and someone in the church asked me, well, you know, you're a plumber, that's great, but what's your gospel message? Like, <laughs> dude, I'm just fitting pipe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just soldering <laughs> copper pipe together. Like, right. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. It, there's, it, it, it doesn't translate well across, across stuff like that. So I get like where the church may be coming from, from that kind of an angle um, in they want to see more butts in seats, but really like you're trying to run a business too. And you just want to have more people come in to the shop to buy coffee, to support what your vision is right? and what your company's trying to do. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think there's a more beautiful aspect, especially in the way that you've just described it going down to Columbia and physically meeting people's needs and educating kids and providing a practical, tangible example of, 
you know, what we could call Christ-like love. Um, I think that's, that's a way more like hands-on approach to, you know, if, if, if one still calls himself a person of faith, that that would be a tangible, like hands-on, like you would be the hands and feet of Jesus in that sort of situation versus maybe Mm -hmm. just trying to get more butts and seats. I don't know. What, (laughs) What do you think about all that? Oh man, there's so much, so much there, you know, I, I think if you're looking at, say, you're using the the plumber analogy, you know, so is the only worthwhile work that the plumber is doing only when he fixes the leaky toilet, you know, in, at at church? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right. no, he's 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 doing great work out in the community every day of the week. Um, it's not just in that, you know, church building or that that worship context. I I think, I I think we get this, you know, and I probably get into territory that I have no business speaking, but we get this, uh, egocentric sort of, you know, uh, we're so egocentrical. I think that we feel like we have this, this thing, this message that everyone needs to hear. Everyone needs to know. Um, I, I don't necessarily feel that way anymore. I don't feel as if I need to be out evangelizing, um, because I have a whole ton to learn Um, when, especially like when you think, let's just think about it in terms of like international development context, so much harm has been done by saying, I know something and you need what I know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Kind of like makes me angry uh, when a group of people say I have something and you need what I have, because we also neglect to really understand what the other person has, what they say they need, um, what the, you know, what their perspective is, what their truth is. And you, you know, I think as human beings, cause we are all human beings, we need more sharing, more, more information going both ways, more learning going both ways. That's one yeah. of the reasons why, uh, I refuse to be like the white guy helicoptering in to Latin America and trying to, you know, solve the problems. That's why we work with uh, local Colombians because Colombians helping Colombians is so much more beneficial. Totally. Um, than, than me just fulfilling my ego need to like uh, your, feel your good. white savior complex. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, look at me, look at my Western industrialized viewpoint yeah, and you need what yeah. I have. Um, you know, there's, there's a author, uh, you know, anthropologist out of UBC, Wade Davis, and he has so many beautiful points about how, you know, this, this, um, you know, the progress that our Western, you know, we talk about like, you know, Western as in like, you know, the West North America or, you know, Europe. And we, we say, okay, look at us, we're progressive. We or you know, progr- progression is so important, whether it's technology, uh, economic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this, but that, this doesn't have to be the only way, you know, there are groups of people that do things differently. Uh, and there are, there are relationships, uh, there are societies or communities that are built around things that are not just progress, not just technology, technological achievement. And, you know, when we apply our Western worldview to working with people, you know, in South America or Africa or, you know, other places that in general share slightly different um, 
a different lens than we do, then I think we're doing such a disservice, not only to them, but also to ourselves, because we're not opening ourselves up. We're not asking questions. We're not learning. We're just saying, here, I have something and you need what I have. Yeah, and that, like we're we're not listening to other people and listening to their experiences and where they're coming yeah. from from their cultural context. Because I have just as much to learn. Yeah, totally. And yeah. like how how humble, you know, we we have to have a sense of humility in ourselves to say like I am not educated in this area and I'm willing to learn instead of saying I have all the answers because of this political system or this religious system that I ascribe to that I've been raised in or yeah. this, whatever, like whatever framework that you've been raised in to think that that is the only right viewpoint and that everything else is inferior is, is to miss out on what humanity has to teach us yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. And there's, there's, I, I think, and this, this may be a bit of a tangent, but um, I was I was raised in a religious system that believed that everything that was taught within those walls was the truth and everything outside of those walls was not. And to think like to think that one denomination of one section of one religion has the monopoly on truth to me is laughable. It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> like there's truth everywhere. Exactly. There's truth in the phone book. Like the phone book is full of truth. It's boring truth, but there's truth there. <laughs> right it it doesn't make sense but as soon as people get it into their heads that we have the truth and we have all this knowledge and we have to give it to other people and we have to show it to them and there's this onus yeah. on them to like share it with people um and be it for good or not like i don't know i think we were talking last week about um like people going to you know mission fields all over the place and they say this like you can you can have this, but listen to this presentation on Jesus first, right? Or listen <laughs> yeah, to this presentation we of the about, gospel. Like we, you know, yeah. I, I think we, we, were, we, were we were talking about, about some, that last week a bit. There's some like homeless shelter yeah, that uh, in order for yeah, them that's to, right. you know, or if they, you know, said that they converted, that they would move to the front of the line so they could get food faster. That's right. You know, yeah. and they saw more conversions on days when they served steak than any other day. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Like, like come on. Yeah. Like when like when you make someone's meal conditional on their acceptance of your version of truth, <laughs> then yep. what do you expect's going to happen? Like the numbers don't lie. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <You> know? <laughs> but I I think that's interesting too like the emphasis that maybe some churches have on um you know what what is it that you're teaching or what are you doing through your shop. And I think like, I, I know there's coffee shops in the city that are more gospel focused and more Jesus focused and they have scripture all over the place. And I think that's great. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely not a space for everybody. Right. Yeah. We're in the space of, of just, you know, doing as good as we can, um, you know, doing the good, good, good stuff. That's for us that we feel like that's enough. We feel like that gives us access to a lot of great, you know, people and communities, and 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 we can, uh, you know, do a lot of good work. Um, yeah, yeah. We're, and we're pretty and you're happy. meeting you're meeting people's basic needs, honestly. Yeah, that's where I love to live. You know, I I went to school to, you know, because I was thinking about becoming a pastor back in the day, and and I do 
much more what I would consider true, like pastoring on a day-to-day basis now than I ever did. Like, you know, to me, you know, pastoring, so to speak, would you know, would be you know just a lot about like walking through tough things with people or yeah. you know, supporting supporting people in different ways. What you know, through through great things and through hard things, uh, I do way more of that than I ever did in a traditional context in this coffee context whether that's just with totally. my staff or with customers or whether that's uh, with you know the people that we work with in Colombia um, but it doesn't always have to be with this underlying push of, of my belief What, what do you think something that being in the business of coffee has taught you? Ooh, great question. I mean, it's taught me a lot. I, I often tell people if you want, you know, cheaper um, form of therapy, you start your own business. You, know, you will, you're forced, <laughs> you're, you're yeah. forced into to dealing with everything, all of your shortcomings, uh, all of the things that, have been lying under the surface, it bubbles up to the surface and, and, and it and it just explodes on you. So you go through these insane periods of growth and it's, so it's taught me so much. I, you know, I think in like a small, a small way, I've learned a lot about just creating, um, you know, safe atmospheres for people. I think even just uh, how to have meaningful conversations, short, meaningful conversations, I often say there's a lot of like half, you know, conversations in a coffee shop. You, you start one, you get interrupted. You know, you start another one, you get interrupted. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So there's a lot of unfinished conversations being had, but you know, the ability to you know, remember those, pick them up where you left off, and continue just having really great human to human interactions is is so awesome. I, I've also just been really encouraged. I I feel like there's a lot of people that I know in, in my life who feel like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And my mm, experience yeah. by working with the public is the opposite. I, I feel like the general consensus is that, that the world is going in a good direction, that people are going in a, individually in good directions, even though we have challenges, of course, you know, but uh, I'm more optimistic about my future and, and our, our collective future the more I spend time with people at the coffee shop. Oh, I love that. Um, I got one more question for you. I know we've we've gone we've gone pretty long, but uh, I want to be respectful <laughs> of your time. Um, what is what's one thing you wish people knew about coffee or business or anything else that we've discussed? Whew. That's a good question. You know, it's going to sound a little maybe cliche, but you know, if 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 people, if we all, myself included, can become more aware of what we're buying and how it's being created and used, I think the world would be a better place. Mm. I would say though, this is I often kind of say this when I have conversations about like sustainable purchasing or ethical purchasing. 
I put the ownership on business more than I put the ownership on consumers. I think a, a lot of people have an attitude, um, you know, and, and they, they might be right. Um, it's just not my view that, that, you know, the, if, if consumers can band together and spend their money according to their you know, beliefs or viewpoint or, 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 you know, their uh, concerns for the world, then that will move the needle. Um, I, 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 I believe that is possible, but I think for the more immediate action, I think it's up to business. I think business has the opportunity to make the right decisions sort of on behalf of the consumer. Like think about like how many products would you buy in a year? You know, it's probably in the thousands, right? Even if it's just groceries, you're buying a thousand, 3000, I don't know, different items. And you're supposed to know the full traceability of every item and how that's impacting the world. I, right. That's yeah. so, so darn hard, but I guarantee you that every good business owner knows almost everything about every single product that they carry, where it comes from, uh, what it takes to get here, all these pieces. And they're in a much better position to make ethical buying purchases. And then in turn, educating the consumer. Um, totally. You know, it's it's the businesses that make excuses that they need they need the the lowest price, uh, and only the lowest price because that's what the consumer demands. I, I don't fully buy into that um, that that explanation. I think I, I think business can do more than what it is doing, um, and maybe that's our you know late stage capitalism that's so focused on uh, on shareholder value and and all those pieces. I, I think, like I said earlier, that, you know, social enterprise is kind of a new, new, not new, but new uh, up and coming way to do business that, you know, creates value for shareholders, creates value for founders and, and whatnot, but also creates value for the end consumer by by making smart decisions. You know, uh, we know where all our products come from. We know it's ethically sourced. We make sure that that's the case. And then customers can have peace of mind when they make purchases. It's one 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 less of the three thousand items that they make. So if every yeah, business that they purchase totally. from made those decisions, we can do a lot better, a lot faster. That's my uh, I, soapbox. I love that. I love that. I, I think that's great. Like the the amount of coffee that I've not been buying from Starbucks, <laughs> I think, has been. Um, an intentional thing on my part to try and and support businesses like yours, or I buy my, my coffee at home from another friend of mine and he imports and roasted himself and, um, you know, supporting smaller businesses. Like even there's a pizza place down the street here that I've been getting pizza from every once in a while. And there's like three locations in Calgary and it's called Bowtie pizza. They have some of the best pizza that I've ever had. Like I love Bowtie. So good. Um, and it's right, like, yeah. But it's expensive, but yeah. I don't mind paying a little bit extra because I know that it's guys that are from Calgary that are sourcing as locally as they can, and that are doing it in a responsible way. And right, so that's a business that I'm willing to pay a little bit extra to support. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you know, I think what people also don't realize about shopping, you know, local or supporting small business is they they think it's really just about the the owner or or the you know the small business um founder right. or whatever but you know i think when you look at it you look at 
it's only it's also about job creation. Small businesses create a vast amount of jobs. Yeah, um, it's totally. about you know the the way that money transfers hands. You know, when when you invest in a small business, they invest in other small businesses, and that money changes hands. You know, when you invest in a big corporation, that money kind of stays in that corporation. Um, you know, and I'm you know I don't want to get on another soapbox, but you know. When you think about like in the government um, pu- pushing money around or providing you know subsidies and things like that, I really think it's the small businesses, the medium and the small businesses that are doing uh, the great work with those subsidies. They're providing and or creating jobs. They're um, you know increasing benefits. They're uh, you know supporting the community in which their little shop is located. Whereas totally. the bigger portion of those subsidies that are given to large businesses just find their way into, you know, maybe bigger assets or the, you know, shareholder, um, you know, um, or, you know, dividends and, you know, the shareholder pockets. So it, you know, I think when you really invest in small business, it's, it doesn't just have to be this altruistic, you know, I'm doing it to support the little guy, but it's also about job creation. It's about, you know, the economic development of our communities, uh, and all those pieces. Um, and it doesn't always just have like local doesn't have to be only about products that can be made, created, grown here in Calgary either. Local can be a business like mine where, you know, my, you know, I have a local community here around our coffee shops, but I also have a local community around our schools in Columbia. And, uh, you know, we don't grow coffee in Canada yet, so we, we don't quite have the climate (laughs) for it. It's, it's a little chilly up here for that. Yeah, doesn't do good in the snow. Yeah. No, so, sir. <laughs> so uh, not everything can be hyper local, and it's okay that it is is not. Uh, we just need to do it well and make sure that everybody is taken care of on the supply chain. Yeah, man, Brandon, this has been great, man. It's been really Same. fun to to chat and like uh, hang out for a bit. And I've I've so appreciated just like hearing about the company and hearing about um, everything that you guys are doing. And I think it's wonderful. So thanks for spending a bit of your evening with me and uh, just hanging out. It's been a blast, man. Same. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks for again for the time and always love talking about this stuff. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Well, there we go. Brandon, thanks for thanks for hanging out and uh, and sharing so much of your company and, and your vision and your heart and um, it was a really great chat, man. I, I really appreciate it. Um, if you guys all loved this episode as as much as I had recording it, um, let me know. Let me know what you loved about it. Let me know what maybe we can improve on. All of that. I would I would love to hear some feedback uh, from the people that listen to this show. So uh, send me an email or I've, I'm on Instagram. Fire me a message, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Also, stay tuned on Instagram as well. For what I've got coming up for Christmas. I've got a few ideas in the works, so I would love to um, get as many people to hear that one as possible. So share the show with your friends, share it with your family, share it with people you think would love it. And uh, until next time, we'll see you on the Unexpected Experts podcast.